Welcome to the fifth of my six lectures on body parts. Um, last time I spoke here, we were talking about the glories of the clitoris. Well, today we're going to look at the inglorious stomach. Um, in retrospect, it probably would have been better to have chosen a lower organ given our current obsession with toilet paper but of course when I drew up these lectures we were not to know that we would be in the middle of a pandemic with leaders attempting to take Churchillian stands, marmite, marmalade, meat flying off our shelves, self-isolating families trying to work out how not to murder each other, and of course the banning of meetings with large numbers of people, which is why, of course, the Gresham College has temporarily um, suspended in-person attendances. But of course, these most of the lectures will be live streamed so that you can watch them on your computer or in bed at home. So do check out the latest information on the website. It is, of course, gresham.ac.uk. And of course, as well as these live stream lectures, they actually have a massive um, archive of lectures, which you can also watch in your pajamas at home, much more stimulating than putting on those endless box sets. So please log on to uh, the website. There are also transcripts that you can download and, of course, enjoy. But for the next hour, we're going to talk about the stomach. 1841, satirical magazine Punch was enjoying making fun of phrenology, a pseudoscience that was incredibly popular in Britain as well as in most of Europe at the time. Now, for those of you who don't know about phrenology, according to its main proponents, the brain is an organ of the mind and could be divided into what they called faculties. These physical regions of the brain mapped onto a person's character. So they believed that by measuring the human skull, phrenologists could determine a person's personality, their talents, their mental capabilities. As Punch joked, should any individual acquainted with the science of phrenology chance to get into what is vulgarly termed a row? and being withal of a meek and lamb-like disposition. He only has to excite his organ of combativeness by scratching vigorously behind his ear, and he will forthwith become bold as a lion, valiant as a game cock, in short, a very lad of wax, ready to fight the devil if he dared them. But, you see, Punch was determined to take the so-called science of phrenology a lot further. If it was possible, they asked, he had asked, to divide the brain into distinctive faculties, why not the stomach? After all, if a particular part of the brain is appropriated for the faculty of time, another for that of wit, and so on and so on. Is it not reasonable to suppose that there is a certain portion of the stomach appropriated to the faculty of roast beef, another for that of deviled kidneys, and so forth? Thus, stomachology, stomachology was founded. Punch divided the stomach into four faculties. The first was called the sustaining faculty, which dealt with foods that were they believed essential to life, such as bread, beef, and mutton. 
This faculty existed in every stomach, although it was most active amongst the lower classes. The second was the faculty of affections, which included cravings for delicate nutrients such as fish, game and pastry. Third faculty was of superior sentiments, which directed stomachs to the investigation of sources, French cookery and other abstruse subjects. The final faculty was intellectual taste, or the faculty of reasoning, which reflected the abstract qualities of olives and Italian salads, of tracing the relationships between turtle punch and a headache. This was the pinnacle of faculties, the venerable metaphysics of the stomach. Punch contend contended that stomachology, like phrenology, was a practical science as much as anything else. It provided adherents with a valuable indicator of the human character and would be helpful for bachelors choosing their wives as well as for voters selecting their members of parliament. Indeed, the author looked forward to a future when every organ of the body would be mapped out with faculties, feelings, propensities and powers like a tattooed New Zealander. Punch concluded by hailing the government for inadvertently adopting, quote, a system founded on the principles of stomachology. The object of our rulers being to reduce the activity of the beef and mutton faculty amongst the people and to create a moral revolution in dietics by a liberal introduction of pure air into the stomachs of the multitude. In other words, Punch's stomachology was a satire on the failures of government to stem the economic depression and the rising price of foodstuffs. And maybe we can recommend to our current leaders to consider also the science of stomachology. Now, Punch's 1841 reflections on stomachology seems as good a start as any to reflect upon that much ignored organ. After all, most people today don't actually pay much attention to their stomach unless hungry or sick. Although, of course, the social pain of obesity inflicts a particularly acute form of misery. In earlier centuries, however, philosophers, physicians and alienists, that's what they used to call uh, psychiatrists, actually took stomachs very seriously indeed. The stomach was believed to exert a formidable impact over the rest of the body, soul and spirit. A 17th, translate, 17th century translation of Paris on the anatomy of man's body described the stomach as more than simply a receptacle of food necessary for the whole body. It was also the seat of appetite by reason of the nerves dispensed, dispersed into its upper orifice and so into its whole structure. Unlike the passivity of other organs which were said to be nourished as plants by juice drawn from the earth, Parry maintained that the stomach 
hath an exquisite sense of feeling by reason of the nerves encompassing this orifice with their mutual embracings, whereby it happens that the ventricle, ventricle part in that part is endured with a quick sense that perceived that perceiving the want and emptiness of meat it may stir up the creature to seek food as such the stomach they believed was as important in thinking as in feeling now this view or such views were highly influenced by the two lives doctrine of Bichon which distinguished between cerebral versus visceral systems. Alienists, that is psychiatrists, debated whether mental illness was due to lesions in the brain and the central nervous systems, or whether they in fact orient, orient, originated in what the late 18th century physician uh, uh, Pinel called the lower regions of the body. Pinel believed that mental illness originated in the stomach, from which it radiated throughout the body, wrecking unbelievable havoc. Now, the Dublin Penny Journal observed, uh, took up these ideas, and it observed that what the stomach will take and what it will issue was the cause of physical as well as psychological ailments. 1836, that journal informed readers that people possessed two internal monitors. One was seated in the mind, the other in the stomach. Indeed, the first step towards dyspepsia was not only the abuse of alcoholic beverages and the absence of sufficient exposure to the breath of heaven, that is, fresh air, it was also due to the love of food and cookery, which accompanied a person's blunted sensibility. It reported that the morbid stimulus of such sensibilities, of such sensi substances, sorry, the morbid stimulus of such uh, substances affects this jaded organ, the stomach, and the desire for food ceases to be in relation to the necessities of the constitution. In other words, the confinement of a town life encouraged a craving for more food than could conveniently be digested. The Dublin Penny Journal speculated that this was why um, the stomach ailments such as dyspepsia or indi indigestion were in fact very British afflictions. They were exacerbated, they argued, by the typical English breakfast of tea, sugar, milk and bread, food that were especially prone to undergo spontaneous fermentation within the stomach. This is why the Dublin Penny Journal encouraged its readers to introduce some meat into their breakfast diet. The sapid or full-flavoured qualities of Dr. Bailey's breakfast bacon, for instance, would give a momentary tone to the organ and, by hastening digestion, supersede the chemical action altogether. In order to be cured of stomach problems, the Dublin 
uh, Penny Journal encouraged readers to rise from your bed, leave your fireside, walk, ride, inhale the sea breeze, fly to the mountains, do this and you may eat toasted cheese like a Welshman. Now, as this 1836 article suggests, stomachs were believed to be particularly sensitive to modern life. It was widely reported that dyspepsia follows in the wake of civilization. This was rumored to be due to the increased consumption of spicy foods. After all, um, England's first dedicated Indian restaurant, the Hindustani Coffee House, which also, by the way, provided um, hookah pipes for smokers, was opened in 1809, and it was considered to be a dangerous sort of uh, in initiative. In the words of an 1847 article entitled a Frenchman's account of English soups and stomachs. The author lamented the British love of hot curries. In his words, it was a horrid importation from India, composed of all kinds of fiery ingredients and so pungent that few of us Frenchmen can dip a tip of our fingers in, the, in it with impunity. But the English of both sexes actually devour it like salamanders, and the police do not think of intervening to prevent them. An Englishman's stomach is endured with marvellous elasticity and easily digests four meals a day. Now, also responsible for the English affliction of indigestion was, they argued, the popular habit of drinking coffee. By the way, by the mid-17th century, there were over 300 coffee houses in London alone. Was it any wonder that stomach disturbances became fashionable, commentators asked. Dyspepsia was even overtaking nerves in popularity. After all, dyspepsics proved, by virtue of their actual suffering, that they had the money to eat and to drink to excess. This was also why there were so many jokes about stomachs, as the 1819 comment in the New Bon Ton magazine that the term biolus was simply a polite way of referring to those who were formerly flatulent. Digestion was a major issue for Victorians for other reasons as well. Around one-fifth, I find this quite astonishing, one-fifth of both in- and out-patients in 19th-century hospitals were diagnosed with some kind of digestive disease. The reasons, I think, are not really surprising. Hygiene was very poor, of course, in Victorian Britain. Milk supplies contaminated, foodstuffs adulterated, meat often diseased. The result was high rates of morbidity and mortality from infant diarrhea, black vomit, yellow fever, cholera, and typhoid. This turned debilitating ailments of the stomach into big business for physicians. One of the earliest British physicians to focus on the stomach also was William Brinton in his really important text, on the pathology, symptoms, and treatment of ulcer of the stomach, which is published in 1857. 
He speculated that the ulcer was the result of old age, privation, mental anxiety, intemperance, and recommended the application of ice, opiates, and a diet of soft, soft pulpy food. Unfortunately, of course, quack doctors also saw an opportunity to make a quick buck, advertising weird and wonderful products designed to calm this disruptive organ. Despite all this vast amount of attention paid to the stomach, very little was actually known about this mysterious organ. By what mechanism was food digested, for example? Because surgery, of course, on this um, organ was very, very risky, ingenious methods were employed to understand the stomach and its actions. In the mid-18th century, for example, Rayel Moore carried out a series of intriguing experiments in which he used a perforated metal tube to insert pieces of meat into the stomach of a tame buzzard. When the buzzard regurgitated it, he noted that the meat had been reduced in both size and weight. He then inserted a sponge inside the tube and, by examining the juices, concluded that gastric juice was responsible for digestion. A century later, in the 1860s, Adolf Kusmol enlisted the help of, of a professional sword swallower to invent what we know as the stomach tube, further, of course, facilitating analysis of the contents of the stomach. The invention of x-rays and from the 1930s, um, the endoscopy gave experimenters even more access to the stomach. Prominent physician Walter B. Cannon focused on the movements of the stomach. He was keen, you see, to establish the effects of emotion on the stomach. As he explained, just as feelings of comfort and peace of mind are fundamental to normal digestion, so discomfort and mental discord may be fundamental to disturbed digestion. The Second World War was also really important in understanding the effects of the stomach because it led to renewed interest in the stomach and the emotions. Under the influence of fear, medical officers discovered blood moved from the digestive tract in order to be utilized by the muscles and brain in mobilizing the whole organism to danger. Thus, frightened soldiers experienced chronic stomach problems or escaped into dyspeptic invalidism. Fear disturbed the functioning of the stomach as well as the nerves. In the words of the author of a 1941 article in the Edinburgh Medical Journal, when people are terrified, the normal movements of the stomach cease. Food lies like a dead weight, the bowels are constipated, palpitation occurs, the blood pressure is raised. Such conditions may lead to organic bodily disorders which cannot be controlled by the drugs of the physician or the knives of the surgeon, unless the emotional factors are also treated. 
So this purported link between the emotions and stomach disorders caused some physicians to speculate anew about, well, why was it that some people developed stomach ulcers while others seemed immune? Early and mid-20th century doctors believed that they were seeing an epidemic of ulcers. 1930, Arthur Dean Bevan, founder of the American College of Surgeons, even concluded that between 10 and 12% of the population were suffering from peptic ulcers. This wasn't a minor thing. People were dying. The death rate from peptic ulcers was 2.8 per thousand in 1900, but by 1943 had risen to 6.8 per thousand. Was the stress of modern life responsible? This was the view of doctors like Andrew B. Rivers of the Mayo Clinic. In 1934, he propounded the racist argument that slow-moving African-Americans who were untouched by aspirations for culture and despite chronically abusing alcohol and tobacco did not suffer from peptic ulcers. In other words, ulcers were the price of white male virility and vitality. Others believed that some people were constitutionally at a risk of developing ulcers. Their personalities were to blame. As George Draper contended in the Annals of Internal Medicine, 1942, tall, thin men with a well-marked emphasis on the feminine component of the androgynous mosaic, were, in other words, feminized men, were susceptible to developing ulcers. And of course, the psychoanalytical version of this um, linked ulcers with uh, feelings of guilt or repressed aggression. Now, as these commentators assumed, not all stomachs were the same. Stomachs were ranked hierarchically in general culture as well as in medicine. I mean, we can all remember that uh, when rallying her troops to fight against the invading Spanish Armada, Queen Elizabeth contended that although she had the body of a weak and feeble woman, she had the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. The comparison was apt. After all, early modern Britain, both the heart and the stomach were linked to ideas about courage. To take stomach meant to take courage. Britons in that period did not really distinguish between mind and body. As early modernist, uh, early modernist historian Jan Pernus explains, Thought and emotion were very much grounded in the body and its physiological processes. The stomach was regarded as the locus of thought and feelings, particularly deep and hidden ones, which explains, I think, early modern expressions such as to fish out the body of a person's stomach. The word stomach also signified a person's disposition or state of feeling with regard to a person, which is why a person might wish to know someone's stomach 
or to learn if he or she were of the same stomach. Similarly, to do something against one's stomach was to do something against one's wishes. It was also used as a verb, stomachdosh, stomachful, stomaching. These were all concerned with anger and resentment, and to stomach meant to be offended. The early modern world also emphasized the roles of stomachs in the production of the humors, that is, blood, phlegm, black bile or melancholy, and yellow bile or colon. As Pernus explains, melancholy, which was cold and dry, made one brooding, unsociable and sad. Phlegm, cold and moist, made one unexcitable and sluggish. White, blood, hot, moist, it made one courageous, amorous, hopeful. Collar, hot, dry, made one hot-tempered and easily angered, but also daring and was believed to be boiled in the stomach, thus explaining why stomach referred to feelings of anger or bravery. And of course, no surprise here, these humours were gendered because male stomachs were believed to be hotter than female ones. Women were thought to be particularly prone to stomach upsets. They had to watch their food, both in terms of its nature and quantity. Stomachs also raced, we've also already heard this. Take Frederick uh, Honeybrook's 1924 classic, The Culture of the Abdomen, The Cure of Obesity and Constipation, which went through 18 editions between its first publication in the 1960s. He believed that the stomachs of what he called natives, by which he meant Africans, were superior to those of civilized men. Alluding to Kipling, he contended that the loaded colon was actually the white man's burden. He was so convinced of this that he proposed eliminating middle-aged spread by encouraging men to dance. And not just any dance, native dances. He disparaged ballroom dancing, instructing his followers to observe the dance systems of natives in which every part of the body participates in outward manifestations of energy and movement. Such dances, he continued, embrace a system of physical culture, rhythmic in action and far-reaching in results beyond anything discoverable in the spasmodic and jerky movements of ascendental muscle training. He contrasted the two forms of dance as muscle rhythm versus muscle jerk, concluding that these two movements summed up the whole difference and the whole philosophy of physical culture between civilized and native races. Movement was only one part of the hygiene of the stomach. The other, of course, diet. Here, the late 18th and 19th century debates focused on the consumption of meat. Did God create animals to satiate our stomachs? 
English writer Soames Jennings believed so in his Disquisitions on Several Subjects, 1782, he contended that God has been pleased to create numberless animals intended for our sustenance, and that they are so intended, the agreeable flavor of their flesh to our palates and the wholesome nutrient which it administers to our stomachs are sufficient proofs. Now, of course, Jennings was fully aware of arguments at the time about the disagreeable task of slaughtering animals. Butchers, he insisted, needed to perform this bloody deed with all the tenderness and compassion possible. God intended this. After all, he had created animals in such a manner that their flesh becomes rancid and unpalatable by a painful and lingering death. It was a heaven-inspired trick, if you like. Jennings' views meant that meat was considered a high-quality, virile food. This was widely shared. Just to take the title of one bestseller of the period, 1856, the title of the book is called The Philosophy of the Stomach, or an exclusively animal diet without any vegetable or condiment whatever, is the most wholesome and fit for man. However, 19th century reformers increasingly disagreed with the pro-meat lobby. They were becoming convinced that stomachs were actually being poisoned. Surely, they contended, consuming animal flesh and blood would have a coarsening effect. In the words of an influent, the influential American dietary reformer, Sylvester Graham, nothing is more true than that familiarity with blood always hardens man and makes him more wantonly cruel. Writing in the 1830s, Graham warned that blood was oppressive to the human stomach. It always produces a generally increased excitement in the system and tends to putrid diseases. The moral dangers were even more worrying. Anyone who devours blood, Graham argued, deadens his or her moral sensibilities and sympathies. The selfish and destructive propensities of meat eaters were increased and rendered more vehement and ferocious. This coarsening effect of carnivorous habits was widely believed to be greater if the animal died in a state of terror. As George Bernard Shaw famously declared, if I were to eat meat, my evacuations would stink. According to him, the stench of fear exuded by an animal on approaching death would contaminate her flesh and therefore the stomach and intestines of whoever subsequently consumed um, her carcass. Vegetarians and people advocating a low meat diet routinely assumed that a diet heavy in animal meat stimulated male virility, which they believed was of course a bad thing. Meat eaters were militaristic. They were morally degenerate. 
According to their way of thinking, peaceful nations were vegetarian nations. Fantasies of the Orient stimulated many of these discussions. In rice-eating Japan, boasted one uh, reformer in the 1890s, the only harsh words heard are those spoken by the Englishman, for kindness prevails even amongst children of the street. For other commentators, proof of the link between vegetarianism and a Pacific temperament could be found closer to home. As an acquaintance of the Bronte family reported, Emily and her siblings were such good children. She added that, I used to think them spiritless. They were so different to any children I had ever seen. In part, I set it down to a fancy Mr. Bronte had of not letting them have flesh meat to eat. They had nothing but potatoes for their dinner. Conversely, the proverbial English roast was held responsible for the Englishman's bad temper. Meat was blamed for upsetting mind and body, overtaxing the liver and causing the proverbial English liver, claimed the author of Do We Eat Too Much Meat, writing in Hearth and Home in the early 1890s. There was an even greater threat. The old adage, you are what you eat, might be literally true. Ingestion is one of the strongest forms of contagion because it involves taking inside of the human body a once sentient animal. In this way, it was believed to exert a greater influence than, for example, second level ingestion, drinking milk, for example, or peaceful contact, petting an animal. Could eating animal flesh turn the consumer into a lesser animal? In Victorian Britain, this question was debated time and time again, and in two very distinctive ways. First, could it magically impart the characteristics of specific animals? Second, or would it just animalize the eater in a more general fashion? Now, the view that people who consumed large quantities of meat would gradually uh, turn into that animal, um, uh, the animal they most enjoyed eating, was satirized, of course, yet again in Punch. 1856, it published a report about an unnamed professor who had been a fa favorite um, eater of horse meat. To the dismay of his wife and the wonderment of his neighbours, the professor gradually became horse-like himself. His face, a vet uh, declared, is growing larger every month. The nose has fallen into a straight line with the forehead. The nostrils have expanded to an inordinate degree and the mouth has stretched itself to more than three times its former width. In time, the vet contended, all traces of the human face divine will be completely obliterated and the melancholic patient will be walking about resembling a pitiful object with a pitiful horse's head on its shoulders. 
So in other words, the physiognomic imaginary that I actually discussed in earlier lectures, here, here actually is appearing in literary, literal form. But of course, more commonly, and in commentary that's not satire, um, carnivorous appetites were portrayed as animalizing the eater in more general ways. 1791, social critic John Oswald insisted that Animal food overpowers the faculties of the stomach, clogs the function of the soul, and renders the mind material and gross. In the 1830s, Graham concurred, emphasizing that the energy and violence of men's selfish propensities and passions were enhanced by eating meat, rendering them more like animals. They were more dull, stupid, sluggish, and sensual. In short, eating meat increased those so-called animal propensities in the consumer. You are what you eat was being read literally. Now, before concluding, I just want to draw some attention to some related debates. So far in this talk, I focused on the stomach and digestion. However, the stomach is also about fat. As we all know, norms have changed from the very thin ideal of the medieval period where you know, thinness was in fact close to saintlyhood um, to the fleshy bulk of the body during the Renaissance, as any Rubens painting will uh, illustrate. But at the same time that the commentators I have looked at so far were investigating the stomach, they were also engaged in parallel debates about fat and diet. Curiously, these debates were addressed to men, not to women, or men much more than to women. Plump women, this is the 19th century, plump women were typically um, portrayed as sexy. They were fertile. The sex goddess of the 1890s through to the 1920s period was, of course, Lillian Russell, who weighed 90 kilos. The thin woman was feared to be consumptive, that is, she had tuberculosis, or she was simply poor. In the words of Harper Weekly, leanness is not of disadvantage to men. Their strength is not affected by it, and they are even more vigorous. But leanness in the fair sex is a dreadful evil. This only changed, in fact, with women's rights movements of the 1890s onwards. In much of the period explored in the talk today, fat men were the ones who were stigmatized, which is why they wore corsets and stomach belts, which gave their silhouette a more slender as well as a more muscular appearance. Note that they also wore padding on their calves for the same reason. There was widespread commentary about the impact on male stomachs of cheaper and richer foods, their um, occupations, sitting at a desk more often, and the effects of suburbanization, as well as the fact that uh, men were feared to be enjoying sport much more as spectators rather than as participants. The slim male body was seen to demonstrate moral, economic, and political restraint. 
as Graham warned in a book republished many times in the 1830s and 1840s and entitled A Lecture to Young Men on Chastity. Highly seasoned food, rich dishes, the free use of flesh, and even the excess of ailment, meaning wine, of course, increase the concupiscent excitability and sensibility of the genital organs. By becoming flabby, men were becoming feminized. National efficiency was thought to be dependent on reducing the sagging abdomens of British men. Most famously, the first best-selling book on dieting to be published in English was William Banting's A Letter on Corpulence, 1863. Within four decades, it had gone through 12 editions and sold some 70,000 copies. Um, that's the equivalent today of about half a million. Banting was primarily concerned with fat men, not, again, not women. For him, fat was the parasite of barnacles on a ship. It was extraneous to the self, weighing it down, not adaptive to the speedy world of modernity. Reducing weight was not so much a matter of cutting calories, which uh, most people had very little knowledge, but about mastication. In other words, the, the popularity of what were called choo-choo diets, physical exercise and regular evacuations of the bowels. You see, I knew I was going to get toilet paper into this today. Um, today, of course, fat is regarded as a public health problem, similar to smoking and alcohol abuse. Obesity increases the risk of type 2 diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, um, and certain kinds of cancers. Death, of course, is another side effect. In a study of um, 890,000 people, every five-point increase in body mass index over 25 was associated with a 30% increase in overall mortality. Because of stigmatization, of course, obesity also leads to psychological unhappiness. Is it any wonder that many people turn to surgery? But note this, over 80% of those seeking surgery are female, 60% are white, 78% have private insurance, suggesting, of course, that many are very well off. Just to conclude, I've argued in today's lecture that we need to take stomachs seriously. They reveal a great deal about societal norms and practices. They point to where the physiological ends and the social begins. They create solidify and then undermine social hierarchies. Perhaps it is time to resuscitate stomachology or the metaphysics of the stomach. Thanks very much. But before I finish, I just want to invite you for my next lecture, which is going to be on feet and foot fetishism, um, which is on the 14th of May. Take care and be safe.